terms of resources. Some of you have been given a lot in terms of position and responsibility. If it's a lot, if it's a little, that's a gift from heaven. And if it's a lot, and you think, oh man, I'm really something. Or if it's a little, and think, I hope I can become somebody someday. You know, there, there's something askew there, isn't there? In both of those, those mindsets, in both of those thinkings. John understood how to apply the sovereignty of God to life's realities. Look at 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7. For who regards you as superior, Paul writes, and what do you have that you did not receive? You know, what do you have that you didn't receive? And maybe some of you are thinking, man, I didn't get enough. I want more. You know, or, man, I'm so glad I got so much. And I'm, I'm really special. But if you did receive it, who do you boast, or why do you boast as if you had not received it? D.A. Carson says, to wish you were someone else serving in a more prominent role is covetousness. To wish you were someone else serving in a more prominent role is covetousness. But that's, don't you hate hearing those kind of things? Man, why did he have to write that? Why do we have to hear that? So, but that's really the bottom, that's a worldview perspective that John is communicating by saying all life is a gift from heaven. Second, there is joy in my assigned role. John was happy with his role. Look at I'm the guy that goes before, comes after, I'm not the Christ. John uses a parable to explain the joy that he has in his assigned role. He's the best man. You know, uh, you know, you know best, the best man in our day and age with our wedding scenarios is, is not like the best man of the ancient first century. The best man was really more like, probably functioned more like the wedding planner. You know, as best I could discern, you know, today we have these wedding planners that the bride hires and she plans, that person, usually a woman, plans out everything. Well, it sort of sounds like the best man played that role. You know, ex, you know organized the wedding, executed the responsibilities, and then, you know, I don't know how comfortable best men today would be what they did in the first century with hearing the bridegroom's voice. You know what that refers to? That's like the bride... That's like the bridegroom calling to the best man and saying, hey, come collect the bed sheets. I've got proof of my wife's virginity. You know, according to Deuteronomy 22. You know, and that's, you know, that's a practice, obviously, we don't want to um, engage in today. But that's exactly what was done back in that day and in that time. And so John realized, I am seeing Old Testament prophecy fulfilled in my presence. I am seeing Old Testament prophecy fulfilled. The bride is the body that he's bringing into life, that he's redeeming, that is a pure, chaste virgin by virtue of his work for it. It's my redeemed bride. It's my redeemed bride. And Hosea 2 verses 19 to 20 says, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. John goes on in verse 30 and part of his worldview is simply this. It is not about me. He must increase. Can you say that about your understanding of your life and your role and your assignment in life. Is it your desire to increase the worth, the glory, the, the renown, the reputation of the Lord Jesus Christ by the way you live, by the way you talk, by the choices you make, by the things you do? You know, and what's so interesting about this passage is that, that four-letter word must. He must increase. I must decrease. You know, it's kind of like you, you sit down with a financial planner and he tells you, okay, here's, here's your net worth and here's what I think you should do. And, and you know, if I were you, I, I would consider doing this. And then I would consider doing that. And I would consider doing this as the third step. You know, so, but you have options. You can sit there, oh, I don't, 
I agree or I don't agree or, you know, the doctor can tell you, you, you know, here are your options. There's, there are no options here is I guess what I'm trying to say. Uh, I don't want to get lost in sort of the analogy, but the point that I want to make is simply this, that it is a must. He must increase. There's no option here. If we believe who Jesus is, we recognize him for what he's declared to be here in this passage of scripture, he must increase. We can't compete with him. We're not rivals with him. He must increase. We must step back and decrease and be his servants who bring glory and honor to him. Verse 31, John had a worldview that simply understood, I'm from the earth. Look at verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and he speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. John understood his creaturely nature. John understood his creaturely nature. He's limited. He's finite. He's out of the earth. He can call people to repentance, but he cannot ultimately impart new life to anybody who comes to repent. You see, John understood his role. I'm finite. I'm limited. I am from this earth. I am not from above. I am a creature. And let me say this to all of us in the room this morning. Let me say it this way. Worship will begin corporately and individually when we understand our role. He is the creator. We are the creature. And we come into his presence with that mindset. He is the creator. We are the creature. I love Psalm 104 verse 24. And you see that uh, here. Oh Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. That pretty much summarizes it, doesn't it? The earth is full of your creatures. There are no rival gods here in Psalm 104 verse 24. And then my responsibility is to, re- is to believe. Look at verses 32 to 36. The Son of God, the Messiah, has come, has testified, has given us his spirit. He who believes has eternal life. Now notice what, what uh, John does in the interplay in verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey. Isn't it kind of interesting that he parallels belief? So it's kind of like, if you believe, you obey. If you don't believe, you're really disobeying. You know, so unbelief is really disobedience. And so when you think about it here, those who do not obey the Son will, see, will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now let me just say a word about this, because I think a lot of us have this understanding of abiding wrath by a divine God, holy God, as we have some image of an out-of-control, angry God, bloodthirsty, seeking revenge on our lives. You know, that's kind of what we think. That's kind of how we view God in that way. His wrath is abiding. He's out of control. He's bloodthirsty. He's after me. He's going to get me. Now, let, let me try to create a more healthy image from the scriptures. Here is a holy, righteous God who says, you can't be in my presence if you're a sinner. You cannot be in my presence if you are not my child by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So you see, to trust the Son is to obey the Son. To not trust the Son is to disobey the Son. And really here's an appeal to believe in keeping with the gospel's purpose. Well, let me run through a couple of affirmations about the person of Christ and we can transition into our Lord's table here. So you look at John 3, 22 to 36 from the perspective of John's worldview. Let's look at it from the perspective of affirmations about the person of Christ. Jesus is the Christ, as you see in verse 28. John says, I am not the Christ. So you see that affirmation. What is John trying to teach us in this passage? I want you to know as you read that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He is the centerpiece. He is the bridegroom. Then see also in verses 30 to 31... He is the exalted one from above and above all. Don't lose sight of that. Don't ever lose sight of the fact that Jesus Christ is indeed the exalted one from above, over all, 
our sovereign, our Lord. And as such, His sovereign authority must be recognized and increased in our lives. Verses 32 to 34 focus on the fact that Jesus is the Word from heaven. Look at verse 32 again. What he has seen and what he has heard, of that he bears witness, and no man receives his witness. He who has received his witness has set his seal to this, that God is true. And I really, I think a lot of what we read here in verses 32 to 34 becomes the heart of John 3, 22 to 36. It's kind of like a shorter version or another perspective on Philippians chapter 2. The Lord Jesus is the true prophet, endowed with the Spirit, the one who has revealed the Father to us. When you receive him and believe him, you give testimony to the fact that God is true. And that's what we do when we put our faith and trust in Christ. Verse 35, Jesus is the one loved by the Father. Now, what I, what I, as I was thinking about this and meditating on that statement, look at verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. What dawned on me, or as I was thinking about this and meditating on this, out of the context of the love for the Son, the Father has given the Son all things. And the Son, who possesses all things, loved us and did everything he possibly could that was decreed and planned from eternity past to save us. You see that love that, that was, was intimate and experienced and understood within the Trinity was shared with us so that we came to know, to know and love our Savior as well. And then finally we see that Jesus is the source of life and death. He's the one who gives life. He's the one that will ultimately render judgment with regard to our eternity. So by way of summary, let me say it this way. The roles and the assignments are clear. He, the one from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, must increase. And I, John the Baptist says, or you and I, the ones from the earth, must decrease. So what do we do with this text? What do we do? Well, here's, let me, let me suggest this. Number one, if you are here this morning and you're curious about the gospel or, or maybe you're, you're searching for some affirmation, let John chapter 3 serve you by giving you good information about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And you say, well, I don't, I don't have any of those doubts. I'm not curious. Well, then let this information, let these affirmations about Jesus now fuel your joy for him. Knowing the more you know, the more you understand who Jesus is, the deeper your joy will become. You know, so look at this passage from that perspective. Second, see it also as appealing to your belief. Could it be that some who sit in this room this morning have never put their faith and trust in Christ. Maybe you were like me as a Roman Catholic years ago. I knew facts, but I had no heart affection for Christ and the gospel. I never put my trust in Christ. And maybe if that is you this morning, I would invite you to put your faith and trust in Christ. And then let this passage also, now here's where the rub goes for I think all of us. But let this passage challenge your affections of heart, your envy, your rivalry, your discontentment. You know, I tell you, in my world of pastoral ministry, envy, rivalry, discontentment runs rampant. You say, oh my word, how can that be true? It is true. We sit around, we go to pastor's meetings, and we talk about, okay, well, how many did you have on Sunday? So we talk about the size of your church. You know, we talk about, uh, well, who's invited you to speak in their conferences? What books have you published? How active is your social blog? You know, are you blogging? Are you tweeting? Are you posting on Instagram? You know, so we have all of this sort of like built into our own little network, this crazy rivalry and discontentment that we just foster among ourselves. It's no different than perhaps for you and your job. 
you know, maybe it's not the, you know, obviously not the same things, but it's different things. When we are discontent, we try to do things that we're not made to. I came across this, this really interesting picture. And, uh, well, you know, this is how you look when you're forcing yourself into a place God didn't create for you. I mean, doesn't that say it all? You know, like, I'm discontent. I want a more prominent role. I don't like the size of my crowd. I don't like the, you know, my sales are not where they should be. So I'm trying to force myself into something that God has not created me for. Let that, be, let that not be true of us. But let's be people who are content. Understand our role. Know our assignment. Have great joy in that. And are in that role and in that assignment, bringing great joy, allowing the Lord to increase in our lives. Well, let me pray. Let's then uh, transition into the Lord's table. And there's a nice transition here into the Lord's table at this moment. Father, we thank you for this text of Scripture. And we pray that as it challenges our, our knowledge, our affections, as it appeals to our belief, Lord, I pray that we might trust in you, exalt you. I pray that we would be a church that is increasing your worth and your value and your reputation so that you might be glorified in all that we say and do. As you think about the Lord's table and as, as Wes uh, plays for us and, and helps us to worship the Lord in this moment, really again, let me just say, the Lord's table is our public opportunity to express our desire for the Lord Jesus Christ to increase and for us to decrease. You know, it's kind of interesting, factions in the Corinthian church disrupted it. And here we're reading about factions in the, the band of disciples with John the Baptist. John 3, 22 to 36 informs our participation at the Lord's table. We who are from below proclaim the person and work of the one from above. The Son, the Messiah, came, took on flesh and blood for us, was crucified, was buried, died, rose again for our redemption. And we humbly accept our position under his authority. 1 Corinthians 11 is the passage that informs us, that guides us. And when I think about that passage, I think about the centrality of the gospel. I think about the call to live a gospel-centered life, to love and trust our Savior, to to be repenters, and to give examination, healthy examination to ourselves. Before you participate, examine yourself with a view towards joyful participation in this Lord's Table celebration. We, we are repenters. We love and care for one another. We stand in awe of a holy God. And we have simple elements that remind us of what Christ did for us. His body was given, was broken. His blood was shed. We don't enter into this. This is not this is a not a time to do some play acting, get a little snack, you know, kind of mid-morning. That's you know, none of that should be factoring into our participation this morning. Here's what we're gonna do. The men are gonna come forward right now, and they have the elements that are part of the Lord's table. The cup, which is juice and the bread. We're gonna serve them at the same time. Please take one of each and just hold it. Don't take it yet. Just hold it. And the reason why I want you to hold it is because I want us to act corporately this morning. I want us to do something together, not individually. We live in a society, we live in a day and age when so much is done individually. But here we're inviting you, those of you who have put your faith and trust in Christ, to take take an element, the cup, take a piece of the wafer, Just hold it. You know, it's this, this little, these two small elements are so powerful if you think about it. They're elements that visually remind us of the gospel. So there's a cup see the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ shed for us. We see this wafer, this body that was given. They also powerfully remind us that this is what creates unity within the church. 
church is not built on a personality of a pastor. The church is built upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. Has everyone been served that wants to receive the elements this morning? Okay. We didn't overlook anyone. Sometimes that happens. We didn't want to do that this morning. All right. So you've got the, the wafer. You've got the juice. It's these things that remind us of the finished work of Christ together. Let's partake together. Let's stand together and sing as we dismiss this morning. Thank you so much for your your attention to the word. Thank you so much for coming out this morning. Thank you so much for following the Lord and being here this morning. Father, we thank you for this celebration of the Lord's table, this preaching of the word. We pray that you might use it, Father, as your spirit sees fit to minister to the needs of our heart, to conform us to your image and likeness. Father, we pray that there would be a resolve within our souls that you would increase and we would decrease. And we'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, thank you, Wes. And those that sang and played with, uh, with Wes this morning, what a great song selection. Really appreciate it. It uh, always sets the right tone for what we want to accomplish here in the morning service. So, so good to see all of you. Thank you for coming out this morning. We want to continue our study in the Gospel of John. So I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 3. And let's just take a look at this passage. And I'd like to start by just reading the text, all right? So John chapter 3, verses 22 to 36. Just follow along either on the screen or on one of your devices or in your text of Scripture. But John 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was uh, with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, uh, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, or we would call that the best man today, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Great text of scripture, a good story, true story, an account of what uh, took place with Jesus and his disciples as well as John the Baptist and his disciples. When you look at this chapter, chapter 3 that we've been working our way through, verses 1 to 21 featured Nicodemus in his conversation with Jesus. Now last week you recall as, as Pastor Shill unpack this section for us, we were reminded in chapter 3 verse 10 that Nicodemus was a teacher of Israel. In other words, he was a learned theologian within this Jewish community. 
Now, what's kind of interesting is that here he is, this learned theologian with all of his degrees, etc., is being rebuked by Jesus, the rural Galilean preacher, for not understanding the new birth and the prophecies that are related to Jesus, as well as his messiahship. So you can imagine that, uh, that tone and that, that setting there. Here's this learned theologian, in a sense, being rebuked by this rural Galilean preacher about some simple, basic gospel things. And of course, Jesus made the point that Nicodemus needs to be born from above. Pay attention to that, from above from the earth. That's sort of a theme that's going to be highlighted or an emphasis that will be drawn to our attention as we work our way through verses 22 to 36. Now, we come to 22 to 36 that features John the Baptist, a Jewish prophet who understood his role and his assignment in relationship to Jesus. John understood, look, I'm the one who gives witness to the coming Messiah. I understand that Jesus is greater than me. And I understand that whatever I would do in terms of baptism or any other uh, Jewish practice is far surpassed by who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to accomplish. And of course, John understood this and Jesus acknowledged the greatness of John in his kingdom for it. Take a look at Luke chapter 7 verse 28 along this line. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So you see, John understood his role. He understood his place. He understood his assignment. And that was obviously celebrated. One of the factors that contributes to this acknowledgement by Jesus. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? Here you have this picture of Nicodemus in verses 1 to 21, that focus on him as the learned theologian who missed the point. And then you come to John the Baptist, the Judah Galilean, Judah prophet, who understands exactly his role and his assignment in the kingdom of God. And he plays that out. He celebrates that role. He has great joy and contentment. So with that in mind, the one big idea or the one main point that I want to communicate with you this morning goes along this line. The roles and the assignments are clear. So life roles, life assignments are clear. He, the one from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, must increase. And I, the one from earth, must decrease. You know, so if there's one point to grab, if there's one emphasis to hold on to this morning, it's this whole idea of who should increase and who must decrease. He must increase I must decrease. All right, so let's take a look at the story of John three twenty-two to 36. And of course, when the Gospels and the Bible are filled with stories, true stories, and we learn through stories so uh, wonderfully and so effectively. And here's one for us to grab hold of. Verses 22 to 24 set the stage. Alright, so in the story, the stage is set for us in verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judah. And there he was spending time with them and baptizing. So here we see Jesus baptizing. Jesus is spending time with his disciples. And of course, it's kind of interesting when you think about this reference to Jesus baptizing. Because it's the only time in the Gospels where this is referenced. Jesus baptizing. Seems like John clarifies in chapter 4 verse 2 that Jesus wasn't actually doing the baptizing, but it was his disciples. As you see there, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. Then we also see John baptizing. He and his disciples are on the east side of the Jordan River in Anon, which means the spring near Salim, which means peace. So I have a map here of of, uh, just a basic map. I'm sure you can't really see that all that well. But if you think about the major geographic features in Israel, you've got the Sea of Galilee to the north, the Jordan River that empties into the Dead Sea. All right, so on the east side, west side of the Jordan River, uh, you see Anan, which is probably that area just south of Jericho, just east of Jerusalem, 
just in that middle section of the land is where this event is taking place. So, uh, again, I apologize for not uh, having a graphic that's clearer than this. I played with it enough to the time I had to say, all right, I got to stop. I can't get this to work the way I want, so I'll just run with it this way. But I apologize for it's, it's um, not working as well. But anyway, you get the idea. The point, where is this taking place? The setting of this uh, baptizing work and this conversation that's going on. So John's baptism was in keeping with the message of the Old Testament prophets. John, along with these Old Testament prophets, called Israel to repentance and to faith in the coming Messiah. Now keep in mind, repentance is a Bible word. Now, re- repent. To repent and believe. Repentance is a Bible word. Repentance has that idea of, of a change. You know, you're going in one direction and you change and you go another direction. It's like a change of your mind. You have a change about your understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. There's a change in your affections. There's a change in your actions. Repentance is something that... that really takes over your whole life. The way you think, the way you feel, the way you act. And so when you repent and you believe, you're turning from something you put your faith and trust and your confidence and you had all of your joy and enjoyment in and you're saying, that is not going to satisfy me any longer. I'm turning from that and I'm turning to Jesus Christ. My joy, my delight, and my satisfaction. When you believe, there is repentance. Belief and repentance are part of the same coin. To believe the gospel is to have a change of mind about the gospel. A change of action about the gospel. A change of affection about the gospel. We, in a sense, live a life of being repenters. We've repented and we continue to uh, express our desire to love and trust our Savior as His Word commands us and directs us. So John and the Old Testament prophets focused on the Messiah, the coming kingdom, and this need for genuine repentance. John's use of baptism was was somewhat unprecedented for the time and for the day. You know, it wasn't so... Commentators and writers like to try to parse out, well, what exactly was John's baptism? How do we define it? How do we understand it? And sometimes we understand it by saying what it's not. It wasn't proselyte baptism. In other words, John wasn't calling Gentiles to come and be converted and become part of the nation of Israel. So we're not talking about proselyte baptism. This baptism probably wasn't like either the community of Qumran and how they practiced sort of a daily washing or a daily baptism. That wasn't what exactly what was going on here either. It wasn't exactly Christian baptism. You know, we, after we have put our faith and trust in Christ, declare that faith publicly through being baptized with water. So it was a call to personal faith and repentance. It was like John is calling the nation of Israel, stop trusting the fact that you are sons of Abraham. Stop trusting in your ancestry. Stop trusting in your status in favor of the Messiah and his kingdom. And regardless of all of the conversation here in the text about baptism, that's really not the major theme. The major theme is not baptism. The major focus that I hope to show you is Christ and emphasizing his person and his work. Then you have this little, this statement here in verse 24, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Kind of seems like an obvious statement, but it, it kind of bring, it brings some joy and delight to me as I read it because what it shows is this awareness that John, the gospel writer, had of other gospels that were being written. Because you see the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, begin the, Galilee, begin the ministry of Christ, you know, um, after Galilee. So John is including some events that are not included in the synoptics. So it's not like, you know, here's some, you know, just, you know, statement for the fact that I've got to meet a certain word count in my in my manuscript that I'm writing here, but it's like John is giving us information about how his gospel 
and his recounting of the life of Christ compares to and aligns with the other gospel writers. So there's this growing sense, there's this consciousness of a canon of scripture that's being developed here. Now in verses 25 to 30, John the Baptist is diffusing a rivalry between Jesus and himself by explaining his role to his disciples. I don't know if you caught it. I tried to emphasize it a little bit in my reading of this passage. But there's, going, there's a debate going on here. There's, there's a little bit of a rivalry, in a sense, brewing here. There's a debate over purification rites and practices. and There's some bitterness over crowd sizes. You know, John's disciples are coming to him and saying, Rabbi, um, hey, um, do you, see, do you see Jesus over there? His crowds are a little bigger than ours. You know, what's going on here? And, you know, trying to maybe stir it up a little bit or for whatever reason. But John sets the conversation on a healthy course by bringing it to an end. And in chapter 3, verse 30, simply saying, look at guys, let's rally the troops. You know, here, let's, let's circle the wagons. Let's talk about this a little bit. I know my role. I understand my assignment. Ultimately, the bottom line is this. He must increase. I must decrease. And so that's what's most important here. That's the focus of this passage. Gary Burge, one of the gospel commentators, gospel of John writers, he says this, which I think is very appropriate. He says this, John 3, 22 to 36, is all about fragmentation that results in the kingdom of God when Jesus is made to compete with human vessels in this world. He goes on to say, no one will admit that they are competing with Jesus. No one will say that they are impeding the kingdom's growth. Words like envy, jealousy, rivalry are never admitted. But just as the Baptist followers were interested in making him into an institution, so too the Christian church can become a human institution built on the foundation of human enterprise and personality. May God spare us of doing that here at Creekside Church. May God help us always to have a high view of Christ, an exalted view of him, an understanding that he must increase and we must decrease. Let's never build this ministry on human enterprise or anyone's personality. Let's build it solidly. Set it, set it firmly and deeply into the person and the work of Christ. In verses 31 to 36, John explains why Jesus, the one from above, must become greater. Now what's going on here in, in, in true story form? You know, a story, a good story always starts with a little bit of a setting so you know where, where the events are taking place. And then there's usually a little bit of a crisis that's going on. And that's what's happened here in the preceding verses. We see, well, there's this little bit of a rivalry that, that John needs to sort out and settle. And then there's usually follow-up commentary. And that's what we find in verses 31 to 36. There's a little bit of commentary here telling us why Jesus, the one from above, must be greater. It's kind of like John sort of looking back, John the gospel writer, taking a bit of time, looking back, reflecting on the story and telling us what's important here for them to grab. Very similar to what John did in verses 16 to 21. But he's emphasizing the need to be born again from above by faith in the one from above. So in keeping with John's purpose, do, do you remember when we started this whole series on the Gospel of John? Do you remember when we told you what we thought was the purpose for the writing of the Gospel of John? John 20, verse 31. John says, I've written these things in order that you might believe. In other words, John, this gospel is an appeal to you to believe in the Messiah, in the Jesus that John documents across all these 21 chapters. So here in chapter 3 is evidence. It's like, this is who Jesus is. He is the one from above. 
And being from above, he's above all. And being from above, do you see how he humbled himself? He came. He took on flesh and blood. He, he revealed to us the Father. He gave us eternal life. And what we need to do is then put our faith and trust in him. We respond to what he did and who he is by faith in him. Now, let me just try to focus. Okay, so that's the story. All right, that's, you know, that's basically a summation of what happens in John 3, 22 to 36. And that basically brings chapter 3 to a close. All right. So now let's think about, let's think about this chapter theologically. Let's think about, okay, what are the main points? What are the big ideas? What's, what's going on in this chapter that I can take hold of that can really help me in my walk with Christ on a daily basis. Let's do that by first of all taking a look at the worldview that John has and expresses in his conversation with his disciples. How did John understand his role and his assignment? And how does that help us understanding our role and our assignment in our daily life and our daily routine? The first thing, John, the one from, uh, from the earth, understood this. In verses 27 to 28, John's worldview, in John's worldview, he understood that all life is a gift. All life is a gift. Do you believe that? Do you understand that? Do you see that? Do you realize that, you know, all that you have, all that you are, sure, you could say, I'm a, I'm a self-made individual. You know, I, I'm here because of what I've done to get where I'm at and where I want to be. But you need to ultimately realize that in that, all life is a gift from heaven. See, John understood his portion and his position are gifts from above. And he understood in light of that, because of, you know, what I have and what position I have in life, I understand that God is ultimately sovereign over all of my life. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, who do you boast as if you had not received it? You see, D.A. Carson says it this way. To wish you were someone else serving in a more prominent role is covetousness. To wish you were someone else serving in a more prominent role is covetousness. See, that's why, you know, worldview, contentment in life begins with understanding all that I have, all that I am, is ultimately a gift from God. And I'm good with that. Even if it's not the life that I wanted to live, I'm good with it. Because this is who I am in the eyes of God, and how he's made me. And I'm not going to be covetous with someone else's role or position. Secondly, notice John's worldview in verse 29. John had joy in his assigned role. John says, in a sense, if I could say it this way, there is joy in my assigned role. John uses a parable to explain the joy he has in his assigned role. He, he's, in a sense, the best man. In this, you know, this sort of parable that he draws out here. He, he, he communicates his understanding of his role and his assignment as I'm the best man. Jesus is the bridegroom. You know, the nation of Israel is the bride. And I'm the best man. Now, it's kind of interesting. The role of the best man in the first century was rather specific. It, you know, it probably included a lot more of what we assign today to a wedding planner. You know, usually what, uh, when a bride and a groom, you know, decide to get married, they hire a wedding planner. And that wedding planner does a lot of the arrangements and, you know, all the logistics and all the, uh, the planning and the preparation. Well, it seems like from what I'm reading and understanding of the first century role of the best man, the best man did that. Organized the wedding details, presided over the Judean wedding, um, you know, was happy in what... Uh, 
uh, was the outcome and the bride and the groom being married and, and there's a, a happy consummation of the marriage and everyone is just rejoicing in all that's taken place. Now it's a little different today I think than what we find uh, uh, back here in the first century. Well John realized that he was seeing Old Testament prophecy fulfilled. Jesus is the bridegroom. The nation is the bride. I'm the best man. Something like Hosea 2, 19-20 is coming to fulfillment where there the prophet said, I will betroth you to me forever. Here is God in a sense speaking to Israel. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. So John understood the role he played in this drama, in this story. He understood his role and was very, very content with me. Then in verse 30, John also understood, it is not about me, he must increase. Verse 30. Again, it's a a very pointed, strongly worded statement. He must increase, but I must decrease. And the emphasis there is on that, that small word, must. It's like, it's not like, well, you know, he should increase. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't communicate what's being said here. Uh, it might be a good idea for him to increase. That's not what's being communicated. Or one of your options would be after examining all of the evidence about who Jesus is and what he's done is for him to increase and you to decrease. That's not the idea at all. It's a very strongly worded statement that says he must increase and I must decrease. You know, I would hope that for all of us who sit here this morning in this room thinking about this passage would in a sense allow the Spirit of God to bring us to a place where we say yes. You know, when I look at, when I look at the affirmations about who Jesus is, when I understand John's contentment in his role and his worldview, yes, there's no doubt about it. He must increase and I must decrease. I am not going to be a rival in a sense to Jesus trying to get a more prominent role, a bigger platform, you know, more opportunity. He must increase, I must decrease. He understood that. He also understood that in verse 31, John said, I understand I am from the earth. Now, you know, you think that, well, okay, well, what's the point there? Well, just think about it for a moment. John's just clearly stating, I'm the created, he's the creator. I'm the created, and as the created, I bow and worship the creator. And true worship will begin when we understand our creaturely nature. And we humbly submit to the Lord God. John understood, I'm limited, I'm finite. John understood, look, man, all I do is I just go before and proclaim the message, Jesus is the one who imparts eternal life. I can't do any of that. I, I can't impart eternal life. I can't make somebody repent. I can't give them understanding. All I can do is proclaim, go before, present, make the case. And John is saying, it's Jesus who gives eternal life. And then in light of that, following up on verses 31 to 30, 32 to 36, Jesus bas- or John basically says, it's my responsibility to believe. My responsibility to believe. Look at how it's worded here. Did you notice this in the interplay in verse 36? Look, well, first of all, look at verse 32. What he has seen and heard... Of that he bears witness, and no man receives his witness. So, speaking of Jesus, he's an authenticated messenger sent from above who is giving witness to, revealing what he has seen and what he has heard from the Father within the Trinity. And then, of course, that message is not widely received. But when it is received, a seal is set on those who believe it that God is true. There's this affirmation that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the word of God. Jesus speaks the word of God. John the Baptist spoke the word of God. All the prophets spoke the word of God. For he gives his spirit without measure. 
The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. And look at verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Again, that's why this gospel is written. But he who does not obey. Do you you notice that? The nature of belief, John is defining here. To believe is to obey. To not believe is to disobey. And you see the indictment, you see the guilt that comes. When you reject the gospel with unbelief, it's viewed as disobedience. To receive the gospel in belief is obedience to the word of God. And so when we believe, we're given eternal life and we'll spend life in the presence of the Lord forever. To disobey and not believe is to have the wrath of God abiding on us. Now, let me just try to balance our understanding of the the abiding wrath of God. Keep in mind that God is not, we should not picture God as an out of control, bloodthirsty, angry God with unbelievers. Just, I I think it would be more healthy for us to understand the wrath of God abides on those who disobey because God is a righteous God. God is a holy God. And God is in a sense saying, you cannot be in my presence because of your unbelief and your ungodliness. You see, so there's that, that casting, so that's, you know, the wrath of God abiding on those who unbelieve and will not obey the gospel. It's kind of interesting in Romans 1, 5, the nature of belief is defined here as well. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about, see it right there, the obedience of faith. To believe is to obey. To not believe is to disobey. And then to be held accountable for that. So this is obviously in keeping with the, with the purpose of John's gospel. Alright, well let me, let me just wrap up here and lead now into our Lord's table worship. By going back through John 22, 3, 22 to 36. By just making or drawing your attention to statements that affirm who Christ is. In John's worldview, in a sense, in verse 28, John's affirming, I am not the Christ, but Jesus is the Christ. So as we prepare for the Lord's table this morning, I'm inviting you to think about this celebration as an affirmation, as a declaration. When I take of the bread and I take of the cup, I'm saying in a sense, I'm affirming Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the one who has come from heaven to pay the debt of my sin, to bring me into a saving faith relationship with him. Jesus is the bridegroom. You know, when I think about this bride-bridegroom imagery, and I let Hosea 2 sort of echo in my thinking, I'm reminded, you know, like why would, why would Jesus refer to our relationship with him through the image of marriage? Why would he use marriage as imagery to emphasize the nature of our relationship with him? And I just think about, I mean, you can think about so many different things, but you think about just the, the covenantal nature of this relationship, the loyalty of this relationship, the love within this relationship. And you think about, I am in a covenantal, intimate relationship with the God of heaven and earth. He loves me. He's loyal to me. And I celebrate him as my bridegroom. I love him for what he's done for me. He is the exalted one who must increase. Again, his sovereign authority must be recognized and embraced. Verses 32 to 34, we've already emphasized he is the word from heaven. So when we, when we hold the elements of the Lord's table in our hands, what, what are we thinking about? What, what are we proclaiming to one another publicly? What are we affirming individually? We're saying, look, I, I've, I've been blessed with eternal life from the Christ. I 
am a recipient of eternal life from the one who is from above. I am in a loyal covenantal relationship with a God of heaven and earth who loves me and who is intimately connected to me. He is the word from heaven who has made known to me the Father. He's opened my eyes that I can see, that I can understand the gospel. Verse 35, he's the one loved by the Father. And I was thinking about this as well and just, you know, what's the point here in verse 35? Now out of this context of love for the Son, the Father has given the Son everything. And the Son who possesses all things has brought you and me into relationship with himself. I mean, I, I mean how, how, how much more could we say or what more could we say about the nature of your relationship with the Lord God and how much He loves you, how much He's committed to you, how far He has gone to bring this relationship about and to make it possible so that you and I can have this delightful relationship. He is the source of life. He is the one who is the source of death as well. I trust you'll believe in Him. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've never Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's totally possible. It's totally possible that you've heard about Christ all of your life. It was like me growing up in a Roman Catholic church situation. I knew facts about the Bible. I knew facts about Jesus. I knew facts about the gospel. But I never understood that it was my responsibility to put my faith and trust in the finished work of Christ. Is that you this morning? Is that you this morning? You've never, you know the facts. You've heard the stories. But you've never seen your need. Nor have you ever put your faith and trust in Christ. I would invite you to do that this morning. John's writing in a sense, you know, if you think about his purpose in John 20, 31. It's almost like John is standing before us. Putting down his pen from writing the gospel and saying, Can you see my Jesus? In these 21 chapters, can you see my Jesus? Can you put your faith and trust in my Jesus? Can you repent from all that you have been doing, living, believing? And repentance is not try harder, do better. Repentance is a genuine faith and trust where we say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I can do no better on my own. I'm turning to you who can make me a new creation in Jesus Christ. I can't try harder. My ladder is not high enough to reach to your glory and into your heaven. My ladder is not high enough. My righteousness is like filthy rags in your sight. So as we transition now into the Lord's table, you know, I'm hoping, praying, eager for you to take hold of this text in a couple of ways. Number one, I want you first of all to understand the facts. I want you to know so I want you to go away from this session from this time that we have spent this morning understanding the facts. What does the Bible say about Jesus, who he is and what he's done? And I want those facts. My my prayer is that those facts will ultimately feed your joy, fuel your joy. The more you know about Christ, the more you study the Word of God, the more understanding you have of His Word, the deeper your joy will be in Christ and in the Gospel. So I want you to know the facts. Secondly, I want you to believe. I really do. I want you to believe. I want those of you who are in this room that are curious, that are doubting, that are unsure, I want you to believe. See my Jesus. See my Jesus. See him as he's laid out here in the scriptures for us. Put your faith and trust in him this morning. And then I want you also to live a life that allows him to increase and you decrease. I I came across an interesting picture and uh, we'll show it right here. You know, this is how you look forcing yourself into a place God didn't create for you. You know, in other words, be who God created you to be. Fulfill your role. Take on your assignment. Be 
who God has made you to be and do that with great joy and great satisfaction and allow him to increase and allow him to to be magnified in your life in such a way that great renown is brought to him and attention is brought to him and not to yourself. May God increase and we decrease. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so very much for this time that we've been able to spend in your word this morning. And we pray, Father, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would genuinely see who you are and all that you have done and accomplished for us. And we'll give you our praise and we'll give you our thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, just a couple of things I always want to try to remind you about when we come to the Lord's table. The Lord's table is a local church ordinance. This is something that was given to us by Jesus himself, designed to remind us of the, of the work of Jesus Christ for us. It 